It started with a mutilation. In 1902, French director Georges Méliès took audiences on a trip to the moon, his landmark silent sci-fi movie in which he shot a rocket right into the man in the moon's eye. As payback, the astronauts in the rocket are attacked by angry moon beasts. These things have ant heads and scorpion torsos and lobster claws for hands. They are clearly played by people in costumes, but they don't act like people. One of them hops like a frog, then bends his legs behind his ears, and then scoots around on his butt. That ant lobster butt scooter? That is the first alien in movie history. An astronaut hits him with an umbrella, and he explodes in a puff of smoke. But there would be more, just like him. 1902, and already... Aliens were invading our silver screens. From Focus Features, welcome to Zoom, the podcast for people who want a closer look at the history, science, and technology that made today's movies. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson, and today I want to know everything about Hollywood and aliens. Why? The new movie Captive State It's a sci-fi invasion thriller set in Chicago nine years after aliens take over our planet. And it made me wonder, why for 117 years have the movies been fascinated with aliens? How and why do filmmakers keep inventing new aliens? And for real, could any of these aliens logically exist? On this episode of Zoom, we're going to talk to filmmakers, science fiction historians, and biologists. There is a lot to explore. So... Let's go. Captive State opens with an attack. Spiny, quill-covered aliens kill two parents who are trying to escape Chicago with their kids. Turn around! But the movie is more interested in what life is like a decade later, when the aliens are in charge. And most people on Earth seem to agree that our new spiky overlords pretty good job. Before first contact, our political system was broken. We were fighting among ourselves in the halls of Congress and on the streets of this great city, slowly bleeding to death. And we needed change. We needed someone to show us a better way. The aliens have won. And some humans are even working for them. Like John Goodman, who plays this detective trying to squash a ragtag human rebellion so his alien dictator bosses can keep the peace. For writer-director Rupert Wyatt, who also made Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the whole movie is a way to look at the choices people make when they're oppressed. This whole notion of a group of people, those that are making the choice to rise up and fight back, but also those that are empowered and making the choice to either collaborate or actually be the oppressors themselves. If I was to tell this story in a historical context, then I would have gone back to the American Revolution against the British, but I didn't want to do that. And that's when the whole notion of of an alien invasion and occupation sort of came about. In other words, Captive State is a political commentary which sounds light years away from a trip to the moon, right? But what if I told you that before George Méliès made silent films, he made political cartoons? Let's take a closer look at that first alien movie. The plot of A Trip to the Moon is simple. It's only 13 minutes long. Some Earthmen decide to go to the moon. They build a rocket, they blast off, they arrive, 
fight the moon beasts, kill the alien king, then fly home and throw a party. You might think, oh, how cute. That's how 1902 people imagined outer space. Well, not exactly. The explorers meet these moon people who are really a, I would say, a kind of perfect representation of what turn-of-the-century people thought of Africans. They have spears, they have you know feathers, they jump around in a way that is not very European-looking. Annalie Newitz is a science journalist and author. It just looks a lot like a very typical story about a white explorer going into the heart of savage Africa, which would have been a very typical storyline at that time. It's true. When Georges Méliès made a trip to the moon, his home country of France was the second largest colonialist power on the planet. And Méliès hated that. He was anti-imperialist. So those explorers of his invading the moon, killing everyone there, and getting hailed as heroes? He is mocking them. I used to think that Melies dressed his murdering astronauts in dunce caps and wizard robes because he thought it looked cool. Nope. He wanted these conquerors to look like fools. And so it's a really great example of how the alien really does stand in for very human fears and very human conflicts between different cultures. Movie aliens, in other words, have always been political metaphors. Take the 1950s. UFOs were everywhere in movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still, Plan 9 from Outer Space, Invasion of the Saucermen, and Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Even future president Jimmy Carter claimed to have seen a UFO back then. Back as a peanut farmer and the head of a uh, Lions Clubs in the southwest Georgia, I and about 25 others saw something in the air that changed colors and was round and came and left. We couldn't figure out what it was. It was unidentified <laughs> as far as we were concerned. But I think it's Seriously, Jimmy Carter. The typical explanation for all of this is that we were in the middle of the Cold War. UFOs were stand-ins for our fear of being attacked by communists. But Lisa Yazik has a different take. She's a professor of science fiction studies at Georgia Tech. We're at the beginning of the space race, and we're also at the beginning of the United States as a world power. So it's very much the moment where we have to learn how we're going to properly act in an intergalactic society. And we get a lot at this point of aliens who are indeed out to lecture to us and to tell us how to behave. Oh, that's right. In the 1950s, many movie aliens rode in on their UFOs to lecture us about civics. The most famous example came from this calm, ethical rational alien named Klaatu in The Day the Earth Stood Still. He is not impressed with mankind. We have an organization for the mutual protection of all planets and for the complete elimination of aggression. It is no concern of ours how you run your own planet. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this Earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. Politics are behind pretty much every alien movie trend. When there's a surge of interest in a certain type of movie alien, it's because of what we feel we're in conflict with right here on Earth. Like, for instance, feminism. Once again, Annalie Newitz. You really see a lot of sexy female aliens cropping up in stories around times when there's debates over women's roles in society. 
Many of these are totally ridiculous movies, but also kind of not joking. Here is Laura, queen of the all-female planet Venus, from Abbott and Costello Go to Mars. She hates men, including, yes, both Abbott and Costello. Silence, all of you. We've done well without men. Our science, art, medicine, and culture surpassed that of any other civilization. We have discovered the secret of eternal life. We live in tranquility and peace. Are we to destroy this by bringing men back? And if a man did make it to an all-female planet, his ray gun was set to mansplain. Here is an Earth bro lecturing another queen in Queen of Outer Space. I admit the men of Earth have been quarrelsome and foolish in the past. They mean no harm to your world. I swear it. You're denying man's love, substituting hatred and a passion for this monstrous power you possess. Monstrous? You're not only a queen, you're a woman too. And a woman needs a man's love. And what's interesting about that kind of story is that it pushes the idea that really you couldn't yet have that kind of power on earth. And that if you have a society where women are in power, it must be an alien society. Then, decades later, when women did have more clout in the workplace and they wanted to, say, confront sexual harassment, there was fear we'd given them too much power. That a sexy woman wanted to be in control not only of her own body, but also of men's. Like the movie Species, in which a half-alien, half-human, played by gorgeous Natasha Henstridge, seduces and kills men. Here is the scientist who created her, explaining why he wanted her to be a girl. We decided to make it female so that it would be more docile and controllable. And here's the punchline. More docile and controllable, huh? I guess you guys don't get out much. It definitely reflects cultural anxieties at the time. You know, what will women's roles be in society as women are entering the workplace, as women are taking positions of political power? How do we feel about that? What does female power look like? And sometimes that takes the form of these nightmare films where female power looks like a woman stabbing you with like a giant pointy penis and implanting like a baby inside you. Of course, you cannot mention alien baby implants without thinking of Ridley Scott's Alien. But while that franchise is very much about men fearing queens that are trying to impregnate them. What's inside me? Hey man, I don't want one of those things birthing anywhere near my ass. Alien also features a second enemy, the corporation. The evil Yutani corporation has sent them out into space to basically just be, you know, alien chow for this alien sample that they want to gather to benefit the corporation. So I think that, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, there was just tons of anxiety about how corporations and governments were treating their citizens, but also how the sort of scientific industrial complex was running roughshod over human life. Forty years later, the Alien franchise is still about companies who do not care if xenomorphs kill us. And I get it. It's not like corporations have become less powerful. But other franchises have changed with our anxieties. In 2008, a half century after Klaatu warned Cold War America we had better live in peace or else, Klaatu came back to Earth for a reboot of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Except now, he was angry about global warming. Oh, and yeah, he was played by Keanu Reeves. We can't risk the survival of this planet for the sake of one species. What are you saying? If the Earth dies, you die. If you die, the Earth survives. 
There are only a handful of planets in the cosmos that are capable of supporting complex life. You can't do this. This one can't be allowed to perish. We can change. We could still turn things around. We've watched, we've waited and hoped that you would change. Please. It's reached the tipping point. We have to act. Please. We'll undo the damage you've done and give the Earth a chance to begin again. Whoa, harsh. But as is often the case in alien movies, we Earthlings get the treatment we deserve. So these aliens we fight, or we flee from, or who tell us we suck, they are a reflection of our very real fears. But what about the aliens themselves? Are they realistic? I mean, the aliens in A Trip to the Moon can't even handle getting hit with umbrellas. I cannot for the life of me imagine a scenario under which that would be a reasonable solution to any sort of problem. It's like, things got rough, so I'm just going to spontaneously explode. That's UCLA's Shane campbell Staten. He's an evolutionary biologist with a particular interest in astrobiology, which is what exactly? It's essentially this combination of geology and chemistry and biology you know, that's all built around this idea of trying to understand what life must look like and what conditions would perpetuate the formation of life on places that are not our planet. Shane also hosts a great podcast called The Biology of Superheroes. So let's ask him about the biology behind a bunch of famous movie aliens, starting with the all-time classic, Little Green Men. Why would they be green? Yeah, so if you talked about Little Green Men, whatever is happening on their planet would you know, result in green pigment. Like maybe they're doing something like more closely akin to like photosynthesis where they need chloroplast in their, in their skin that would turn it green. Okay, all right, got it. What about E.T.? E.T., wherever he comes from, it must have been a relatively dark place. You know, the fact that he has this sort of glowing finger that allows him to communicate and interact in some way with, with other organisms. So if we, again, look at our planet as sort of a testing ground to think about the environments in which these types of things evolve, I mean, we see like deep sea systems and cave systems. You get animals that communicate at night uh, using bioluminescence, things like fireflies. What you're describing to me, Shane, I'm picturing like a blacklight heavy metal poster. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, he must have been really, really rock. But what about something much weirder? What about the blob? I think the blob is probably closer to what we would expect to find hmm. on a different planet. Like the idea of finding another bipedal, highly communicative organism on a, on a different planet. I mean, it's, it's kind of far-fetched, but it, I think if we do find life, it will look actually probably a lot more like the blob. On Earth, I think the equivalent to the blob would be um, basically slime molds, which are these sort of masses of like gelatinous protoplasm, which are like cytoplasm and nucleus and organelles, like all the sort of cell stuff in this kind of mass. I mean, it seems like relatively simple, but you know, research has shown that these are actually pretty complex life forms. What about something like the heptapods from, from Arrival? Yeah, when you're thinking about these heptapods, you know, if you have this odd number of, of limbs that suggests that sort of wherever they have evolved, right, that basic body plan you know, must define everything that's sort of closely related to them on their respective evolutionary tree. You know, so their version of a dog or their version you know, of a squirrel, you know, wherever they live must have that same sort of basic body plan. Okay, so like instead of the animals here who evolved to be symmetrical with two legs or four legs, a dog on a heptapod planet could have 
five legs or nine? Yes, exactly. Okay, I love it. But do people ever tell you what you do is a buzzkill? That science, like, takes the magic and wonder out of movies? A lot of, I think, initial reaction to to this approach is that, well, what if you try to explain stuff, then it's no longer as cool, and why can't you use your imagination? But really, science feeds the imagination. Yeah, and it also makes it a lot more real. Okay, but speaking of feeding, actually, would aliens want to eat us? I mean, if they got to the planet and they're like, oh, man, there's these juicy things, you know, (laughs) running around that are much slower than we are. Could be possible that, you know, they came here for their equivalent of chicken nuggets, which just so happened to be us. You know, but I would also like to think that if a civilization is advanced enough to have solved the problems of space travel and do it successfully, you know, that they've also solved aspects of hunger and taking life to fuel your own biological necessities. Okay, okay. So they would be advanced enough to be vegan. All right. (laughs) But what about the sexy Natasha Henstridge style of alien then? I mean, by which I mean, would aliens really want to bone us? Oh, Lord. Um... (laughs) Dude, that is a great question. Do aliens want to bone us? That That's the first time I've ever been asked that question. <laughs> we would be more likely to have a child with a jellyfish than we would with an alien, even if they were a bipedal speaking alien, because we are genetically speaking, biologically speaking, more closely related to a jellyfish. Okay, though. But here is the question of the moment. The aliens in captive state, they're covered in these like sea urchin spikes and they can shapeshift and become stabbing weapons. They also can stretch up super tall and then crouch really, really low. Fascinating. Go ahead. What do you make of that? Wow. Okay. That, man, that's really different than anything I've heard of before. I mean, this whole like shape changing and urchin-like behavior. I mean, that to me kind of reminds me of cephalopods, right? So things like, you know, the octopus and squids and cuttlefish. Fair enough. But here is what's interesting. I went to the source and asked captive state director Rupert Wyatt about his aliens And it turns out I described them wrong to Shane. Sorry, Shane. Those cool shape-changing spikes, they are not skin. They're armor. I wanted to do something that, yes, hadn't really been seen before. That armor goes from a very kind of um, loose, free-hanging look into these sort of sharp spikes. So they become like porcupines when they go into attack mode. And so on the surface, at least when we first see them, we think that's who they are. But there's a scene where one of those aliens has its armor ripped off. Watching the pale, almost fragile creature underneath the spikes take its last breaths, it made me feel strangely sad. It didn't seem like a cephalopod. It seemed almost human. Which, it turns out, was exactly the point. Once they are unmasked, it's not unlike us in the sense that they are skin and bone. In this one particular moment, it's why we brought as much of the human face to that particular character as it could because I wanted to see into its eyes, I wanted to see its fear, so that we understood that the face of the enemy was not only mortal but also sentient and had feeling. There's way more empathy in that shot than Georges Melly has had for all of his murderous humans. So in this 117-year journey from a trip to the moon to captive state, alien movies have come full circle. From one species conquering another, to maybe realizing every species, us and them, makes mistakes. Think of it as the next step in our evolution, finding the humanity in everyone, even aliens.
On the next episode of Zoom, we meet the species that actually inspired Melies to make movies. The horse. Yes, the horse. The first movie star. I like to say that the movie industry was basically built on the back of a horse. But I wonder, can horses act? Subscribe to Zoom on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening right now and find out. Zoom is produced by Focus Features. It was written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson. Our senior producer is Rico Galliano. Stephen Colon engineered. Editing and sound design by Jake Gorski. Our spooky original music was composed by Martin Ostwick. Production assistance was provided by Zach Vasquez. And Kim Troxel is our fabulous graphic designer. Till next time, stay curious. <laughs>